Coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. What I do think has been a thematic mistake across my life and how I've approached my career thus far is not trusting myself and outsourcing my decision-making, my authority, my agency, looking outside of me to tell me what is going to be right for Sarah and what success should look like. I never asked myself those questions. Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, episode 105. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Sarah McElroy. Sarah is a former hustle culture devotee, ex-chief marketing officer, the Wall Street Journal's poster girl for pandemic career burnout, and a two-time member of the Great Resignation, class of 2021 and 2022. Finding herself in the company of millions of other women who also set set unfulfilling jobs ablaze during the Great Resignation, she returned to her journalism roots and began to explore the stories, breaking points, and defining moments that led women to seek greater opportunity mid-pandemic. These conversations became the genesis of Raise to Rise, an organization created to amplify women's voices from the great resignation and inspire others to blaze new trails in their own careers. Sarah, glad to have you on the show today. Thank you, Naftali. It's wonderful to be here. This is this is a conversation that I'm actually really excited about for a variety of reasons. But actually, as I was reading your bio, a new question came to mind. So I feel like I want to ask you this because, you know, the way we react to realities tells you a lot about a person. And of course, you all have choice. Right. So Viktor Frankl is, is famous for saying, in effect, that the there's 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 a gap. There's a moment between the stimulus and the response. Right. How I respond to whether it's pain, physical pain, emotional pain, um, somebody else's behavior, whatever that is, is a choice that we make. Now, I could go on for a while about and I've and I've shared this before with my audience about the choice that I that I made um, as an outgoing head of school, knowing that I wasn't going to be renewed and whether that was the pain whether that was the hurt or some of the other feelings, as well as thinking about my future, right? Where I'd be going with all of this, et cetera. But you also made a choice, right? So you had an experience. You had actually a longer bio, which is really great. I'm going to include the whole thing in the show notes because I want everybody to see the full story. I just wanted to get right into the conversation. But you chose to not only leave what you were doing, but also to, and, and to, and to become something different. That alone is a choice. But you also chose to, you said, to go back to your journalism roots, almost become a reporter again, collect data, I'm assuming stories, narratives, things like that, and do something with it. I'm curious to know what it was. First of all, you can elaborate more about all of what I just said, because I clearly didn't paint the picture as well as you can. But besides for that, what was the impetus for that choice? And how has it served you or not served you since that point? Yes. It's a great question. I love that you brought Viktor Frankl into the fold because I love his work in logo therapy so much. And I think 
those themes are really important and coming through in a lot of the research that I'm doing. But if I'm completely honest, when I look back at my second resignation, the space between stimulus and response in that moment was actually smaller than I would have liked it to be because I had I'd gone from burning out in this chief marketing officer role and I am pretty raw when I moved down to Florida and I start this new job and I'm thinking new job, fresh start. I'm really careful with my hours. I'm not working as much before. And uh, at, at one point in time, I was actually working up to 20 hours a day when I was balancing both an executive MBA program and the CMO job, just thinking that I could, you know, just make it happen until I graduated, but ended up with shingles and a couple bouts of throwing up blood. And so I come down here and I'm like, I am not going to do that again. So I was really uh, very thoughtful about limiting my work hours and setting better boundaries. But I'd come into an organization that had this very toxic, misogynistic culture. And I'd been dealing with a sexual harassment situation that wasn't properly addressed for months. So I will say that I had proper space between the stimulus and the response as far as I gave them four months to address it. But they finally did an investigation in January because I wouldn't drop the issue and it was so cursory and check the box by the time all was said and done. There were no new outcomes, no findings. The woman from HR had put an hour on my calendar for the investigation readout. And she clearly had just worked with legal and read back four minutes of 10 bullet points, 192 words versus the 3,000 words of documentation I had submitted detailing four months of missteps. And I got off the phone that from that call and that night I was just like, I'm done. I'm not setting back or foot back in that organization again, unless it's to turn in my laptop and walk right back out the door. And that's exactly what I did. I actually took my laptop in before it on the next morning. I'm shaking as my, I've got my finger hovering over the send button and I hit send and I sent a blistering anti-harassment resignation letter to not only my boss, HR and the CEO. So from the standpoint of, how you teed up this question. Certainly, I wish I'd had a lit, little bit more space in between that. But then sometimes in our lives, we do hit breaking points. And there has to be this like cracking open that happens to then take us where we're meant to be. Because this became the fuel that led me to found Raise to Rise and to talk to women from the Great Resignation to understand their stories. Because I'm thinking, I can't be the only woman who's experiencing this if millions of other women are making job moves, quitting, leaving corporate altogether for some of them right now. Mm. Yeah, you, you said a lot. And uh, you know, my, my question certainly created space for that. And I'd love to, I, I want to comment one thing, and then I want to ask you a question. You know, you are you didn't say it directly, I don't think, but I think you're certainly on point with this, that sometimes too much time in between actually doesn't necessarily serve us. I remember, for example, I was notified in November. My contract only ended the following June. So I had some runway. The challenge I had, number one, I knew I wasn't going to stay in that community. I wasn't from that community. My family wasn't going to want to live there long term. So we needed to relocate. We were relocating to an area relatively far down from Atlanta up to the New Jersey, New York area. Um, and on top of it, to figure out finance, you know, figure out my my job and my direction, I wound up spending a lot of time doing things that may or may not have fully served me, right? I wasn't sure direction. I wasn't sure in terms of additional schooling. I'm going to spare the details. But sometimes when you only have a little bit of time to figure things out, you you kind of like your brain 
you know, whether it's in your subconscious or whatnot, you, you, you identify more rapidly what is the right path and you take purposeful action. Whereas you feel like you have a lot of time, you can get a little slow with it. I actually was just on a call, a call with, a, with a client a short while ago who's been in the accounting space for a long time is looking to go independent. But I kind of sensed that he felt like he had almost too much time to figure out next steps. And I was mm-hmm. trying to press him a little bit to be a little, you know, tighten the time frame so that he actually takes purposeful action. Yeah. It's that bias for action piece, right? If we don't act on what we know, and it's actually, it's come through very loud and clear in the conversations that I've been having with women. We we need to act on what we know. Otherwise we can get stuck in this sort of limbo, this purgatory of just spinning and these spin cycles of burnout, unhappiness, discontent, et cetera. And I think you're you're spot on with that as far as the way it transpired for me. I was just so hopeful, though, that something would would happen and be done because the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back comment that was made was actually overheard by HR. And I'm thinking it's 2022. There's absolutely no way that this is going to be able to pass by without a proper investigation and disciplinary action or whatever it is. And it it never took place. And I was just so shocked. And so I was, though, that corporate good girl my whole life. So we're not even talking, um, yes, corporate, but even before that, like in school and valedictorian and follow the rules and do all the things and like check all the boxes and you don't ask questions or at least not too many of them. Don't rock the boat. Like all of those things. I lived by that playbook. And so I'm just naive, I suppose, but just holding out that something is going to change. And then when it didn't, that was like something just snapped open in me because I had this nascently healing burnout wound from the CMO role. And I'm walking into this new organization where for four months, something should be happening, but it isn't. And it's this daily paper cut on that open wound that by the time I learned that that there wasn't going to be true resolution, I just knew I was done. Yeah. Yeah. And then taking action around it is really important because like you said, sometimes what happens is there's, there's too much of a gap between the pain and, and, and then you kind of go back into it, hoping for a different outcome. But when you come to that realization that maybe there won't be a different outcome, or I just need a new, a new direction, actually doing something concrete and moving there definitively often really can serve somebody. So I'm curious to know, Sarah, from your perspective, from the conversations you're having, I would imagine resignation, it's such a broad term because, you know, it's just, I mean, it's simple in its, in, in its, in its meaning, but it's, it's varied in its application, right? The sources of it, the reasons for it must be so different for so many people, whether it's personal, you know, sometimes they're not resigning because of corporate per se, but it might be matters that are happening on the other side that just make corporate untenable. Or it might be their experiences in the office or some combination. I'm curious to know what kind of women, for the most part, what are their experiences? Where are they in their life um, That's that are the primary individuals who are dealing with resignation? And of course, what are they finding on the back end of that decision? Sure. Well, the fascinating thing is that whereas the great resignation was led by the younger generations in the office, like your your Gen Zers, your millennials, we've now started to see that the great resignation has been expanding upwards. And the interesting thing is that I have talked to women of all industries, all career levels, all walks of life. And we're talking women from 
in their 20s, just beginning their careers to women in their 60s in their final role. And this phenomenon that is the great resignation has touched them all. What I've really found at the heart of it, it's to your point, because it is really difficult to, to pinpoint a specific reason that people are leaving because we are so individual and so unique, different challenges, not only at work and our experiences with our cultures, our jobs, our bosses, et cetera, but then of course the personal factors at home that were uh, potentially even some of the challenges we may have had were exacerbated by the pandemic and losing our safety nets like childcare facilities and school closing and not being able to see our families and get support from them. But the one piece that's at the heart of it all is really this reprioritization and a returning to our values and what matters most. And when women are talking about what they want to do, I see it as a right sizing of our careers and our work and our lives where we're figuring out how our careers slot into our lives versus prior to that pre-pandemic, we were expected that career was the hub and our the rest of our lives had to be spokes around it. And so that's really what it's been about as women have had more stress to bear when we look at the uh, the impact of the pandemic. Women were spending upwards of an additional three hours per day in really unrecognized unpaid labor. And we're talking about that childcare and housework. And that was uh, from the McKinsey and Lean in Women in the Workplace report in 2020. And so when you got like all the professional stress that women were already experiencing, then you tack that on, it's a real recipe for this mass burnout that we've been seeing. Mm. And so, I mean, I, 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 there's a lot there also, the right sizing piece in particular, I jotted down. Yes. But that is my important. favorite. You know, you know we, we, we often get confused with our priorities, I think. Whether it's our education, our parents, um, Madison Avenue, you know, whatever we see in the media, oftentimes there's so many messages. And I do think whether it's people leaving the workplace or reprioritizing what's most important to them um, while at work, while at home, all of that, I think that that has really been an underlying shift that many, many people have been um, forced to reckon with, so to speak. And many have come to this conclusion that. It's not working for me. My question then to you, Sarah, is, well, what does work for them? Like, I'm I'm assuming that most of these women who are leaving do need the income, right? Do need, they weren't just in the job for the sake of the experience or for the the honor associated with it, whatever that might be, the power. They were in there because they needed that as well. What are they choosing to do instead? And is it ultimately, is it a viable alternative to what they left behind? Yeah. So many different things to unpack in all of that. The women that I've interviewed. So I I love this question and I appreciate it because I'll tell people about Raise to Rise in this project. And the assumption that comes into play is like, oh, well, people just don't want to work anymore. These women don't want to work anymore. And that is not the case at all. Actually, I have yet to even interview a woman who has decided, like, I'm even going to completely stay home with my children. There are women who are now doing more of the staying home with their kids, but they're also doing some kind of work of their own at home. It's just a fascinating thing that like that refrain is not applicable, at least with the data set that I've been working with. And I do think it's pretty uh, representative of the larger picture, given that I have been able to chat with so many women uh, of all different sort of 
ages, walks of life, race, and then even outside of the United States too. This is a really, this is a theme that is, has a universality to it. So they are switching to other corporate jobs, but yes, some of them are becoming entrepreneurs and doing their own thing too. The latest version of that McKenzie and Lean In Women in the Workplace report actually just came out a few days ago and found that women, female leaders at least, are leaving at the highest rate that they've ever left. Since the report's inception in 2015, they're leaving at a rate of 10.5%, and that actually is netting out to, for every director or woman promoted to a director level, there are two that are leaving. And the CEO of Lean, of Lean In said, like, this is disastrous. We already don't have enough women leaders uh, at, at the top. And then if they're all leaving too, we have a pipeline problem on our hands beyond just like the burnout, the stress, all of the other issues that women are facing in the workplace. So it's this fascinating thing that's happening where women are saying like, no more to this culture, or if I've been passed over for a promotion or whatever, I will take my, you know, the the value that I can bring, I will go somewhere else that does value it. And so that's really been a, a lot of it. But yes, other women are saying like, I'm done with corporate altogether. So I'm just curious, are there are there voices out there, whether these are people <clears throat> that you're interviewing, or people that you or, or you know, you've referenced uh, some studies and whatnot, are, are you reading any cries, so to speak, for utilizing this data and utilizing this trend to reframe the behaviors, the mindsets, yes. et cetera, that are going on in corporate America? Or is there just sort of like, if you use the term, a great resignation about this is kind of like what it is. Don't, if you don't like it, find something else to do. Like where, where's, where's the sentiment here? Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. So I would say that I have I've really focused on the individual women. So I can't speak to what big organizations are talking about. I did though one of the women I spoke with was an HR lead president of the Americas for a global company and she left her role and the things we are talking about is really around the the piece of flexibility. Actually the mom project, they've studied uh, essentially like the top 10 key success drivers for women in the workplace or working uh, women or mothers, excuse me, in the workplace. And they found that like flexibility is number one. And the second piece of the puzzle that women really want is respect. And that is respect, not just for me as a woman with a seat at the table, but it's also respect for the fact that I am a mom and I have this other part of my life and I don't want to have to hide it. There's uh, this concept of the motherhood penalty and the fatherhood bonus in corporate where it's like, if I'm a mom and I'm leaving at four o'clock to go pick up my kids, it's like, ugh, it's kind of annoying that Sarah's going to leave and she's got to take care of that versus if my spouse were to go and pick up my kids and it's like, oh, look at Josh. He's he's leaving to pick up the kids at four. What a great dad he is. You know, it's like this perception that's created from these uh, these undercurrents of old belief systems that we have not completely eradicated from our conversations and our, our experiences in the workplace. So I do think that companies are paying attention somewhat, but 
the return to work and this sort of forcing people back into the office when flexibility is really being touted as the number one thing, not just for working moms, though, too. I mean, it's it is working women. And even we're seeing with other you know men who are, are not interested in the same old, same old arbitrary rule of I have to go into the office five days a week, like. It's um it's a fascinating thing where they're considering it, but some companies are are laying down the law to say if you don't like it, you go somewhere else. I personally think that that is a myopic perspective to take because the data shows that we are not seeing an episodic blip in the workforce. That was what McKenzie said in another report they did that came out in July, looking at these shifts and saying, okay, is this like just this? moment in time suspended in amber or are we seeing a true structural change to the workforce and they deeply believe yes like the co or the co-author of the port said we're not ever going back to the same mindsets or the same way that work was in 2019 mm. oh my okay so so uh, first of all this piece about the motherhood penalty and the fatherhood bonus um resonates for me on a variety of levels like i think about it for example i've got six kids and so mm. the age range of my children is almost mid twenties to still under 10. And my, if my, if my nine-year-old steps up and does X, Y, or Z in the kitchen elsewhere, it's almost like, wow, you know, you really, you really did that unexpected thing. And if my much older child does the same thing, it's almost like, yeah, okay, you did it, but you're expected mm -hmm. to do it. Or you're the older child. Of course you need to know about right. it. So there is a lot of that that exists in, in, in so many different dynamics that the one who's not expected to step up, it's almost like to use a sports analogy, the guy who brings a team that was expected to be last place to middle of the pack, or maybe slightly better wins manager of the year. And the guy right. who brought a pretty good team to the top doesn't necessarily get that recognition. So it is interesting to see how that plays out in this environment as well. A little bit of a sidebar. Yeah. But I thought I would. Um, I also yeah. love the. I also love that flexibility and respect component, because again, as I, I think I mentioned to you, maybe even before we started recording, I share a wall with my wife who works remotely. One of the things that I think she values more than anything else is that flexibility, right? The ability okay. to leave the office and literally put clothing in the washing machine or run an errand or pick up a kid who's calling in sick from school and not have to worry. Like when we years ago when we lived uh, in Chicago, so she was working downtown. We lived further north, almost in the suburban area. And it was really a distance. If there was a problem, I actually worked closer to home. I often had to go deal with it. That flexibility is important. The ability to be respected that this is my life and I don't have to hide it or Become, pretend to be something else or be somehow, you know, robotic or whatever is also important. So I get all of that. So here's my, so, so sort of now very choppily transitioning to the actual question I had written down beforehand, because I did want to, I sort of wanted to validate those points before moving forward is you keep talking about all these women you are, or you're interviewing. Number one, how do you find them? Like, who are these mm -hmm. people that you're interviewing? Yeah. And number two, if you, and this is not really related, so if you want to split them, that's fine. If you could coach them or if they asked your advice, right, what would you coach people who are not feeling, you know, that they belong or maybe they're wondering about pulling the plug on their on their current job? What advice do you give to women? Do you tell them always X, always Y as in to say you got to leave or you got to stick it out or something in between? What is your process? 
because I'm sure there are a lot of people, and by the way, men too, who are listening to yes. this. I know a lot of men who are not happy at their jobs. A lot. Yep, yep. I wasn't so happy in some of mine as well. And they're wondering the same question. So Sarah, yep. you can put your coaching head on. Um, okay. And you can, and you could, so tell us who you're talking <laughs> to, how you find them, and also how you advise them when they're feeling this, this yeah. tension and stress and they don't know yeah. what well, so the fascinating thing is that I actually set out on this project to just interview women from the Great Resignation. Like, I have already quit my job. I wanted to hear those stories. But I put out the initial call for stories at the beginning of April of this year, and I was shocked that in that first wave, I had nearly an equal number of women reaching out who were exactly that, Nepali. They were saying, I feel stuck, but I just like want my story to be heard. I'm curious about this movement that you're building and the conversation that you're having. What are you learning? It, it was amazing to me that those conversations would be had, but they were reaching out in private venues. Like this was clearly a discussion that was weighing heavily on a lot of people's hearts and minds and souls, but we felt like they felt like they didn't have really an avenue to talk about it. So I'll say, actually, the, the thing that's been interesting is that I found the bulk of my women through LinkedIn, which has just been phenomenal because I've connected with women from all over the United States, but like Botswana, France, South Africa. I talked to a woman from Spain yesterday. Like that has been so fascinating to capture the full global cultural conversation that is happening around this. Now, when it comes to though, those women who have not quit and who aren't telling their stories and are just coming to this uh, platform that is raised to rise to better understand what they can do. What I ended up doing is that based on my conversations with these women, I was able to chart a six step process that we go through when we're walking away. And it's, it's got a lot of universality to it in that we're talking to men about this too. And it's like, of course, it's the same sort of experience. It's a very human experience that we go through, but it starts out with rumbling where we're starting to feel that misalignment, that fragmentation. We're starting to sense like maybe something isn't right here. Maybe we're becoming disillusioned, disengaged. We feel like we're trapped. It can also manifest physically. I had shingles in the CMO job. I was also seeing a rapid deterioration of my mental and emotional well-being as I was dealing with that sexual harassment situation. So that is the first stage. The second is knowing. And that is that realization of like, ah, I'm going to have to leave. And we typically see there, I was able to delineate between three different ways that we come to this knowing. The first being that like shot out of the dark, Hollywood light bulb moment of, I just have to leave. I, it's instantaneously shattered my reality. That's what I'm going to have to do. The second is more of a gradual build. And that though, usually ends up in some type of breaking point, that straw that broke the camel's back kind of analogy. And the third is more of coming to this place of acceptance. Like I accept that I am not going to be able to change what is fueling my unhappiness in this current situation or in my culture at work or whatever. And I'm going to surrender to the fact that I'm going to have to leave. Now, this can either be a really empowered surrender or it can be disappointing too, because we can be really not happy that we're going to end up having to leave. So then we take that knowing and we have specific milestones to make that decision, to take the action to quit, because those are not foregone conclusions. It goes back to what you're talking about with that space in between. 
we can end up bouncing back into rumbling between rumbling and knowing as we're like realizing it, but trying to stick our heads in the sand and ignore it and hope it gets better and do things to try and fix it. Sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. So really we have to think about decision and action as two separate milestones. And then the final two parts of the process are after effects and assimilation. After effects, that's the fallout of the decision. And these are consequences that are good, bad, and ugly. We could love where we land. We could love the new job. We could also find that it's really not a good fit. We could also find that we start a new business and we need to pivot almost immediately because it's not turning out the way we hope. But it's really important that we look at that experience of these unexpected, unintended consequences as part and parcel to the journey of stepping into uncertainty so that we're prepared for it. Because it's just a part of any time you step into uncertainty, whether it's in your career or your life. And then assimilation is that retrospective. It's that place where we're looking up and out from the rubble and we're able to see the gifts and the lessons of the experience, again, even if it turned out not the way we wanted. So we, we can see we're stronger, we're more resilient, we know ourselves better, and we have more of an ability to flex that risk-taking muscle in the future. So that's like, that's the process that you go to. Now, to answer your question related to whether or not I steer people in a certain direction, the biggest learning from this, the, the red thread running through all of these interviews was that every woman just knew like she just needed to leave. And that's why that knowing became that milestone that it did in that process. I was so shocked because we've been taught really logical, rational approaches to our careers now. And that doesn't mean that some women didn't do pro con lists or spreadsheets and built budgets and things like that. Those are really, those rational decision-making tools are an important part of the process, but they were secondary to more of this like instinct, this gut knowing that they had to leave. So I always say when I'm talking with women, like, you know what's best for you. I deeply believe that we all do as women. We just don't know how to tune out because we haven't been taught to do so. The Our own fear, the conditioning that um, that we've been exposed to growing up and the expectations of what women should do and being caretakers and putting our needs be, you know, behind other people's. And um, then we also get stuck in our own sort of in our own way with things like imposter syndrome or other sort of cognitive limitations like sunk cost fallacy. Oh, I've invested too much. I can't leave. Or cognitive biases like, uh, you know, I've choice overload here. I'm just not going to do anything. I'm just going to ignore it. So, so many interesting things come into play, but ultimately I tell them, you got to come back to you and figure out what you want. You know, what's best tune out the noise. Wow. Okay. So <clears throat> there's a lot more I'd like to ask. We are running out of time for this segment, but I would like to, if you could do it in bullet point format, that would be fantastic. Just quickly, some key strategies that you would advise if or when women know that it's time to go, that would make the quitting process simplest, both for them, as well as any complexities, legal or otherwise. Because we all know at different points, quitting is a real thing we may have to face but how do you, there's there's a there's an art to it yes there there is there really is there's so many considerations are you wanting me to put that together for the show notes is that what you mean no you i mean if you have a couple of quick hits you want to share with us yeah. right now that would be fantastic definitely okay so what i always say is that 
we if we don't have to leave immediately like we're not facing a harassment a discrimination a toxic culture that is really running us into the ground we should take our time i believe in what i call conscious quitting which is a thoughtful intentional approach to walking away we give ourselves permission to walk away it's a reasonable solution whereas you know we we talk a lot about like quitting being demonized it is a viable solution, but we do it in a very intentional way where we're being the conscious architects of our careers. So we are looking at what we want to do next from the standpoint of the type of work, the work and lifestyle, the number of hours we're working, the kind of that like dream of what that would look like. Now, it's hard to achieve always, right, perfectly, but we know what we're working towards. So then as we search for new jobs or we figure out the business that we're going to build, we ensure that it aligns with that. We want to lessen the potential for buyer's remorse on the other side because we make knee-jerk reactions. I honestly think that's happened a lot in the Great Resignation with you hear surveys saying that great resignationers anywhere between 20 and 70% regret their decision to have quit. And I don't necessarily think it's because that particular choice in and of itself was wrong. It's just that we didn't know how to go about planning what that next move would look like. And we weren't necessarily prepared for what the, the fallout could be if we didn't like that next job. So you have the dream that you're working towards. You're trying to uh, to fit your next move as closely to that as possible. And if you can't get it perfectly, that's more than okay, because that's really life. It's a lot of baby steps in the direction of what you're trying to ultimately achieve. And you're also, you have a backup plan too. You you uh, plan your timing from the standpoint of a more of a graceful exit, unlike my uh, quitting the next day. Don't do that. I highly don't re recommend that. That's a shock to our system, right? Like we want to plan. It's a major life decision to quit. So as much as we can be shored up across our finances, our relationships, our faith and our spiritual connection, like anything in our lives that we can solidify. So we have that to fall back on when we shake the snow globe that is our career. We want the rest of our lives to be really strong. So those are just some of the, the main takeaways sure. that we should be thinking. About to I, what I actually like about it is that it, it, it incorporated the answer to another question that I was thinking about asking you, which is how do you advise that women find a better option when they do yeah. resign? But it sounded like you talked about a lot of that. What I also yes. liked about the answer is that during that process, one of the, one of the benefits is you already know, you've already sort of like cut away this part of your life in the sense that I don't have to worry about the fallout of, you know, me being a little bit maybe less focused or me being a little bit more me focused right now as I'm trying to identify my next steps because I've already resigned. You haven't done it, but in your mind, you've already done it. And that removes some of the pressure. Whereas if you feel like every move you make, you know, your your, your career is at risk, oftentimes you tend to be risk averse. But it yeah. seems like that could potentially open people up to be a little bit more, not necessarily aggressive, but at least open, you know, to new yes. possibilities that would serve them. So the exactly. last uh, the last uh, question of this segment is a question I ask everybody, and that relates to the biggest mistake you've ever made. I know you just mentioned a mistake a moment ago. I'm not sure if that's the one, um, yeah. but you know, everybody who succeeds makes mistakes. We all know that. Sometimes we don't realize it when we see them in their glitzy form and how they're projected in the media and whatnot, but nobody gets there without many mistakes along the way. Share with us yours, please, and what you learned from it. Yeah. Well, so that, that leaving the quitting the next day, I don't so much look at it as a mistake because Naftali, I don't think we'd be sitting here talking right now if I hadn't done that. Cause I was so 
fired up and wanting to explore this topic. But what I do think has been a thematic mistake across my life and how I've approached my career thus far is not trusting myself and outsourcing my decision-making, my authority, my agency, looking outside of me to tell me what is going to be right for Sarah and what success should look like. I never asked myself those questions. And so when I got in that CMO role and I have now, I'm 35, I've hit the C-suite, that was the dream for a little bit valedictorian Sarah in Wyoming. And I'm empty, I'm miserable, and I'm wondering, what have I done wrong? I checked all the boxes. I did all the things you asked me to. Why am I so miserable? That's it. I never connected with that deeper part of me. And so that is a mistake that I learned from on the daily, because I will also say from the neural pathways that have been laid to look outside of myself for validation and direction for my whole life. I'm not used to always trusting Sarah and tapping into the deeper, wiser part of me that knows what's best for me. It's a process. It's a practice. You nurture that relationship. But that has been a really massive lesson from a mistake that has happened a number of times in my life. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's kind of funny because as a former educator, one of the things that I would tell my students is that when you're not sure about the answer, you should trust your initial instinct. So Mm. like you're looking at a multiple choice example and you're not sure what the right answer is. Um, If you have a couple, obviously, if there's a process of elimination, make it easier for yourself. But ultimately, if you're down to one or two, I'm sorry, two or three viable options, you go with the one that you initially thought to be right. Because for the most part, that would be the one that guides you. Yes. I think it's true. Like in your example as well, you know, trust. I often reference the ABCD model of Ken Blanchard, able, believable, connected and dependable. Right. So different parts of it are relevant here. But if you kind of like believe that for the most part, you have made good decisions, that you understand mm-hmm. what your needs are and all of that, be willing to lean on it, be willing to trust that it's yes. going to guide you here as well and be be prepared to block out the noise because there always will there always yeah. will be that in our lives. And we just have to be able at some point to say enough's enough. Here's my decision. And then you go all in. So we're going to go all in on the next segment, rapid fire, short and sweet. My first question to you is a person you'd love to do lunch with present or past. I would love to have lunch with Pat Cole, who is the CEO of Athletic Greens in Atlanta. She comes from a restaurant background, which I did as well. And she has shown the way that a woman can show up as a mother and as a whole person at work in such a better way than I've ever seen modeled by someone who's a CEO. That compartmentalization has been expected from a lot of women. Okay. So we'll have to be reaching out to her. Let's move on to the next one. What would, what do you, what, what you tell yourself, excuse me. So like your inner message, uh, when you need to pick me up. It's Sarah, you got this. You, you know, what's best for you going back to what we talked about. Yeah. The worst advice you've ever received. It really was more of that unwritten advice, but that playbook of following the linear career path, climbing the ladder, chasing fancier titles and fatter paychecks. Like I cannot even believe how incongruent that really truly is with who I am as a person. For some people that works, but it doesn't work for me. A productivity tip that helps you to get more done. 
I have started doing the artist's way. So I'm writing a book right now uh, and I've started doing the artist's way. And it is uh, the idea of doing morning pages every morning, this stream of consciousness writing. It's from Julia Cameron's book. And it's to just get out your thoughts. And it's actually, it's not even just for artists or writers. It is a way for us to better tap into our creativity. And what I found happened when I started doing that, I've only been doing it for about 10 days, but I had a severe case of writer's block for a month like unblocked when you start tapping into that flow far earlier in the morning. It's amazing. So it's clear, Sarah, that you have so much more to share than what I've asked you. And I thank you very much for everything. Uh, how can Lead to Succeed Nation connect with you, learn more about your work, the important work that you're doing with Raise to Rise? Um, we'll put in the show notes, but but tell us how they can connect. Yes. My website is raisetorise.com and you can find me on LinkedIn and Instagram as Sarah J. McElroy. And finally, Sarah, I have to ask you because I do to everyone and I think you would have something special here as well to leave our episode with one final life lesson. Final life lesson is that our careers are just as much a part of our lives as anything. And we try to compartmentalize. We try to think it's separate and be okay with showing up at a job every day that we don't love. Like that's why quiet quitting is such a hot trend right now. But I would deeply challenge everyone listening to say, if I'm not happy and I'm spending my life in this job and how we you know, spend our days is how we spend our lives, according to writer Annie Dillard, what would need to change? And what if I open the door to explore that and think about those possibilities rather just than just shutting it and saying it just has to be the way it has to be because you get one shot and that's it. So make it a brilliant one and live the most beautiful life, have the greatest impact that you can through your career in addition to your personal life as well. Wow. Such power. Okay. Well, thank you, Sarah. It's really, really been a pleasure. I'm so glad that we connected. I'm so glad that I was able to um, share your story, learn from your story and the story of the many women that you have been interviewing and connecting with. And I'm sure it's going to evolve further over time. And I think it's an important lesson for all of us, whether corporate or not, to really understand the, the many connections and the many challenges that you raised in our conversation today. So I'm looking forward to sharing this. Uh, a lot of gold here. And thank you again for your time. Thank you, Naftali. Great to be here. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Your feedback gives the show more social proof and encourages more folks to listen.